Hello, welcome. Um, my name is Christian Tischer. I work in the Center for Bioimage Analysis at the EMBL in Heidelberg, and I will give an overview of bioimage analysis. So what is bioimage analysis? I think one can say it's an emerging field in computer science that deals with extracting quantitative information from biological image data. So why is it that such a field is emerging just now? I think one reason is that um, advances in microscopy automation made it now possible to acquire so much data that we cannot, cannot analyze it anymore manually. So I have some examples here. For example, in screening microscopy, you acquire data of many cells treated with different compounds, sometimes thousands, so that gives you really many images that uh, need automated quantification. Another example is electron microscopy. Here there is so much data because they acquired at high nanometer resolution and also now volumetric, so one single data set can also be several terabyte. And then finally, as a last example, I put light sheet microscopy. So here the large amount of data mainly comes from the fact that you can acquire really long time-lapse movies of even some whole developmental processes. So obviously, any of these modalities, it's really hard to analyze, analyze manually. That's why we need bioimage analysis. So what can bioimage analysis give you concretely? Here is one example, just a very simple 2D image example. Here on the right, we have a control sample with normal-looking interface cells, mostly. Then we have a treated sample, and we see many cells look different now. Now, maybe 10 to 20 years ago, it was still state-of-the-art that you just publish these two images and say these are representative, and then you have your scientific statement. I think this changed quite a bit now, so you really need to quantify. So, for example, you have to make such a plot and compute the fraction of non-interface cells in these two samples. Now, ideally, this should also be reproducible, which means it should typically be not done manually, but by some automated computer algorithm so that you can run it again and you get the same value. And then finally, you shouldn't only do this for one image, but for many and do statistical testing to see that your finding is really true. And all of this is part of the discipline of bioimage analysis. Another thing where bioimage analysis can really help you a lot is if you want to find something in a big data set. So as I already pointed out, sometimes you not have only two treatments, but maybe 10,000. Now to see that treatment number 8,756 induced an effect uh, can be very tedious. And so it's nice if there's a computer that tells you, look, this is an image you really should have a look at. Then last but not least, we also want to extract really biophysically meaningful numbers. So in this, I think, very beautiful movie, we see a molecular motor walking along microtubules. And the natural thing that we want to know is how fast does it move. And so, for example, here, the uh, scientists did a really good job. So they measured for many of these motors how fast they move in micrometers per second. So that's also something that bioimage analysis is doing. Um, now, how do you actually do this? So, to know how a bioimage analysis works more technically, you have to first understand what an image really is. And my attempt here of defining an image is to say, well, it's a set of values at certain coordinates. So, in the simplest example, the coordinate system would be 2D. So, you have an x-axis and an y-axis, as pointed out here. And then at different coordinates, you have 
different values. So essentially you have a 2D matrix in this case. Now this 2D matrix representation is very good for the computer because it can uh, compute something on it, but for our visual system that's obviously not the best representation. That's why what we normally do is we apply a so-called lookup table where, for example, in this case we say, okay, zeros should be painted black and values of 255 should be painted white and then we have a nice image that we can actually look at. Um, another thing you have to know is a bit about image formation to interpret these values correctly. So there's two things that happen during image formation and that's blur and noise. So in this example, you see the bottom of a cell and it's expressing a um, growth factor receptor. Now, this line here is, uh, is a line profile and you see, so this is basically corresponding to this plot. So this is the coordinate in the image. And here we have the intensity in this image. So you see the bright edge, and then you see we are in the cell. Now, the width of this peak, for example, is on the order of a few hundred nanometers. So that means it's probably not true, not biological, but it's just diffraction limit. Um, another thing you have to look at, too, is this variations in intensity. So you have to wonder, are they really true? Is that really different receptor concentrations, or is it something else? So it could be very well noise that could be introduced by the detector or just by the stochastic emissions of the photons. So um, you have to be aware of these two effects when you interpret your image data. Um, another thing one can see here is that... Um, so typically, the blur is worse in the z-direction compared to the xy direction. So I indicated it here by drawing these point spread functions. And I also indicated the outline of the cell. Now you see there's something interesting happening. If you go to the edge of the cell, more of the cell membrane is fitting into this point spread function than down here. And that means pixel intensities will be brighter here than here, even though biologically nothing interesting happened. So the fact that we see these bright boundaries here might be actually an artifact uh, of, of the asymmetric uh, detection volume of our microscope. So that's another thing you have to always pay attention to. So I highly recommend always drawing these pictures, especially if you work at the reflection, diffraction limit, so to be sure that you interpret your data correctly. Now, there is now a whole field, it's called image restoration, that tries to counteract the blur and the noise. So here you see an example again, which obviously has some blur and some noise. And down there you see the restored version, which is looking much nicer. Um, so the classical denoising method would be probably just to average the image, and the de-blurring would be called deconvolution. Now, as we all know, we live in a decade of machine learning, so this specific example actually has not done, been done with conventional techniques, but they used a deep convolutional neural network to simultaneously denoise and de-blur, and they got this really nice result. Now, if you do this, there's always this discussion, yeah? Is, is this really true here, or did we invent maybe something during the process of image restoration? And I think there's no easy answer, so it's really our job as scientists to provide control experiments that convince ourselves that what we did here is the good thing. Okay, so let's get a bit more really into the math of bioimage analysis. 
So let's look at a simple averaging filter. So here we have a noisy image and after averaging it looks obviously much cleaner. So and the recipe in this case is um, so for example here we have one pixel that had the value of 59 now in the new image it has a value of 54 and the recipe is we take all pixels in this 5 by 5 neighborhood and we average them and that will be the new, the new value which in this case is 54. Uh, another way of saying that is, and that's where the name convolutional filters come from, is we convolved the image with a so-called kernel, a 5 by 5 kernel, where in this case the weights are all 1, and we get the result. Now, you may say, hmm, if I take all these numbers and I average them, isn't it a big coincidence that I get 54 and not maybe 54.3? And in fact, you are exactly right. So, uh, this is not entirely correct. The correct result would be down here. So you get these floating point numbers. So why don't they show up here? Um, one additional thing you have to know about images, they also have data types. Yeah? And they can be integer data types. That means you cannot have floating points or they can be a floating point data type. So, and you can change between them. That makes everything a bit complicated. So in fact, when you do image processing, you have to care about these uh, technical details and make sure that the data type of your output image can actually represent the, the, the result of the mathematical operation that you applied. Um, here's just another convolutional filter, a very classical one, an edge detection filter. So we first see if we apply it on the right, actually all the right edges of the objects have been enhanced. So how does that work? I computed here a little example. Again, we want to replace the center pixel by some value that's computed based on the neighborhood values of the pixels. So in this case, we take these three values, we add them, that's basically this recipe. Then we take those three values and we subtract them from the other ones and then we got 116, which is the value in the new image. Why do we do all this image processing? It's not only to make images look nicer, but it's mostly to help image segmentation. And image segmentation is going from a gray value image, which we see here of two nuclei, to another kind of image, which is basically a representation of two objects. Yeah? So that's a main task of bioimage analysis to segment images. And image processing is an important tool. So in the next slide, I have maybe the simplest image segmentation workflow that you can do. So again, we start with our gray value image. So you see here all the numbers and we are at the edge of the nucleus. So you see here they are a bit brighter. That's why we're inside of the nucleus. Down here, we are starting to get outside. So we have lower values. Now we simply say all the pixels that are brighter than 73 should become one in the new image and all the ones that are darker should be zero. And then we get this new image and that's a so-called binary image because it has only two values. Now, maybe for you, you think we might be done, right? I mean, I can already very clearly see two objects, but uh, the computer has to do one other step and it's called a connected component analysis. So basically it has to simply look which of these ones are connected to each other. And then, for example, those ones are all connected. And now we have a new image where all the values are two if they belong to nucleus number two, and they would be one if they belong to nucleus number one. 
So another thing you see here is a very typical thing. I mean, we have three images, but the meaning of the value in these images is, is very, very different. That's a typical thing for, for image analysis that you have to pay attention to when you look at these numbers. Now, how does image processing help us for image segmentation? Again, here's an example. So we have now an image of a bit more noisy nuclei. If we want to try to threshold this image, we have a problem because some of the noise pixels outside of the nuclei will be as bright as the pixels inside of the nuclei, and that's why it doesn't really work. But if we now first apply the averaging filter that we have seen a few slides before and then threshold, everything works beautifully. Yeah? So in this case, for example, we use image processing to reduce noise, and that's how we facilitate image segmentation. Now, I want to show one more example like this that's a bit more complicated, but it's one of my favorite filters for biology, so I have to show it. It's the so-called top hat filter, and it addresses a very typical problem in biology. So we want to count now how many of these vesicles we have in the cell, but there is also background fluorescence of a protein that's not bound to the vesicles, and that makes it very difficult to find the threshold. So for example, if we want to find this dot, we will also get the whole nucleus because it's so bright. So what this top hat filter is doing, it's actually producing a good estimation of the background that's not vesicle, and we can subtract it from the original, and then we beautifully only segment uh, the bright vesicles. So that's very useful, and how it works more technically is there's two so-called rank filters applied, where intensity values of individual pixels are replaced by the minimum intensity that you find in a certain neighborhood that's called an erosion, and then we do here the opposite, we do a dilation, and uh, then we get, if we subtract this, the result. So I, I know I didn't explain it uh, like in all detail, but I really highly recommend looking at this filter. And I also just wanted to make the point that one filter can be actually a sequence of filters that leads to the desired result. Now, where it becomes really difficult is electron microscopy data. So, for example, here, maybe we want to find four different classes of objects, actually, not only two. So, for example, the endoplasmic reticulum, the cytoplasm, here we have mitochondria, and we have some other class of uh, unknown structure. Now, how do we do this? So, in principle, we have to now find for all of these four classes like strategies of image processing and thresholding that will then highlight them and uh, segment them. So this can become very, very difficult and uh, like close to impossible to achieve in a finite amount of time. So and that really is where machine learning helps. Um, basically, the computer for us tries all kinds of different processing filters and picks the ones that make sense. Yeah? So, and how you help the computer is by painting a few annotations. So you label some pixels in the endoplasmic reticulum, some in the cytoplasm, and some in the mitochondria uh, to, to tell it what it should find. And then the computer computes all kinds of filters, for example, an edge filter, averaging filter, but also many, many others. Then it tries very many different thresholds and then basically finds the right combination that gives you the good result. And there have been quite some advancements in the recent years. And uh, so the keyword is deep convolutional neural networks. And uh, one of the main ideas is you don't only compute filters once, 
but you do this actually several times in a row. So this direction is basically the depth. So that's why it's called deep convolution. We don't do it only one time, but several times. And that really makes these algorithms much, much more powerful. And I highly recommend having a look at the publications down here. Um, now that we have segmented the image, we actually have objects. So we can measure something. Uh, so, for example, we can measure how big they are. So we could just measure the area in pixels. Then there is so-called shape parameters. So we can, for example, measure how round they are. And we can also measure their intensity. And I would like to point this out in a bit more detail. So, for example, this cell has the brightest maximum intensity value. And that makes total sense because it's a metaphase. So the DNA is condensed. And that's why there is a very bright pixel. Now, what you can also measure is you can measure the sum intensity in these cells. And what's interesting is they don't actually differ so much. And again, if you think about it, that makes total sense because why should there be more DNA in metaphase than, for example, in prometaphase? So I think this is a good example to also show if you measure different aspects of intensity, you can get really different information. So it's, it's very powerful, but also you have to be a bit careful to measure the right thing to get the right answer. Now, you can do even better. You can try to calibrate these measurements. So for example, here we measured the area in pixels. It can be much nicer if you have it in micrometer squared. And that's usually relatively easy to get because when you are on the microscope, you know how big one pixel is. So you can just apply this to get the, the, um, the right units. Now, what's also interesting, there is the circularity parameter where you actually divide the area by the perimeter squared. And you see it has no unit. And that's because you divide two spatial units. So these kind of numbers are nice because they're in some sense self-calibrated. And usually if you do a ratio of something against something else, it's a good idea because you cancel out uh, all kind of things. Yeah? So that can be a, a good idea. Mm. Then for intensities, in fact, it's also possible to calibrate them, but it's a bit more work. So instead of just measuring gray values, you actually measure the concentration, for example, or for the sum intensity, you really measure the amount of molecules that you have in a certain region in the cell. Obviously, that's extremely nice to have, but it's a bit more work. So one thing you can do is you com can combine the conventional microscopy with a, which, with a technology called fluorescence correlation spectroscopy, which allows you to calibrate the intensity to numbers. And again, there is a publication here that you may want to have a look at if you're interested. Um, now, what bioimage analysis does for you is it converts images to numbers, essentially, right? So we have all this data, and then we maybe say, okay, how many cells are in one of the images, or how bright are they, or similar. And then we may look at all these numbers and see, oh, this looks very interesting. Something happened, yeah? But then what you naturally next want to know is, how does the image look like that corresponds to this number? That's why you really also have to look for softwares that allow you to go back from the numbers to the images. So to give a more concrete example, here um, the y-axis is how fragmented a Golgi was in a certain cell. So each dot is actually an individual cell, and we have three different treatments. Now you see this cell, wow, it really had 80 
Golgi fragments inside. Is that really true? Or maybe was it just noise in the cell that has been wrongly segmented? So you really need to check. So what you really need is you need a tool where you can literally click on this dot and it shows you the image with the segmentation that the computer did. And in this case, it was really correct. This is really a highly fragmented cell. In contrast, if you click on one of these control dots, you see, okay, everything looks nice, normal-looking Golgi. Now, um, what you also should do for a few example images, at least, is characterize how correct the automated computer segmentation actually was. So what you should do is you can count how many of these dots were correctly segmented. So that is the number of true positive dots. Then you should also count how many of them were wrong. So this is false positive. Then you can compute the precision. And similarly, you can also compute another quantity called recall that tells you how efficiently you actually found them. So it's good practice to do this for a few images and basically like this characterize how well the segmentation works. Now, to do all of this, uh, you obviously need some software. And I tried here to show some software packages that I'm aware of. And actually, in, in orange are painted software packages that will be covered in subsequent talks here on iBiology. So probably many of you have heard about ImageJ, which is one of the oldest and most used softwares for bioimage analysis. Then another very important library that you will learn more about here on iBiology is Bioformats. You might not see it much, but you will use it every day because it allows you to open images that are now saved in all these different file formats. So another very important thing. Then you will also hear about Cell Profiler. That's a software that's very good for analyzing this high-throughput screening data. Um, Another thing that you realize when you look at that slide is that it's very full. So there's a lot of tools and they're also nicely distributed uh, uh, across all major programming languages. So in one way that's nice because it means you probably will for sure find the tool you need, but it's also a bit of a problem because how do you find it and then also how do you combine all of them? So here I would like to point out something, a software that's called NIME and I think it represents a recent trend and the trend is that you basically have these image analysis components, even in different programming languages, and you can still chain them together to generate a workflow. So, for example, in NIME, you could have a Java component, and then you have a Python component, and then a MATLAB component. So I think this is a, a good trend, and uh, I hope it continues and makes it easier to construct workflows using the best tools of the respective language. Now, finally, as I said... Bioimage analysis is a rather new field, so it's in fact still finding itself. So what's really a great thing is I think now that we have this common forum and that's basically where almost all of the relevant open source platforms came together and that's where you can ask questions and I really recommend don't be shy. For example, if you would now like to know what's a good book that I can read when I want to learn more about bioimage analysis, go to the forum. And if you don't find it, just ask. There will be many people answering you happily. Another noteworthy uh, initiative here is this network of European bioimage analysts. So this, as the name, sa name says, happened in Europe, where really bioimage analysts came together and try also to define the profession of a bioimage analyst. So kind of elevated from just 
a postdoc that can do coding in a lab to a, a real profession. And that was also a quite successful uh, initiative. And there's more communities forming. So I recommend just look in your country if, if you can find something. All right. With this, I'm at the end. And I would like to thank you for watching. And I wish you very happy imaging and also very successful image analysis. Thank you.